Hello and welcome to Innovations, a cutting-edge podcast series brought to you by the experts at Sanford Health. You're listening to our 14th episode, A Pledge to End Type 1 Diabetes. I'm your host, Simon Floss, with Sanford Health News. Today, we're learning what Sanford Health is doing to prevent type 1 diabetes from Dr. Kurt Griffin, a pediatrics endocrinology specialist, and Dr. Mike Wildey, Vice President Medical Officer for Sanford Health in Sioux Falls. Thanks for joining us today, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Simon. Let's uh, start things off with both of your backgrounds in this field. How long have both of you been studying and working with type 1 diabetes? Uh, Dr. Griffin, we'll start with you. All right, so I have been board certified in pediatric endocrinology for coming up on 20 years here. Uh, So that's the specialty that winds up providing a lot of the specialty care for the kids with type 1. And Dr. Weldy? Uh, So I've uh, practiced as a general internist, so mainly uh, dealing with uh, patients from the adult side. Uh, But uh, as we'll find out, I'm sure, later in the podcast here, um, uh, also a personal sufferer of the illness and uh, have family members as well. So uh, certainly have some uh, quite a bit of interest in the the disease and finding better treatment and cure. Well, as you mentioned, we got a lot of topics to get to here today. Uh, we'll start with children. Type 1 diabetes in children. What percentage of the population is diagnosed with this disease? So a good ballpark number for the kids is about half a percent or 1 in 200. One of the things that we're finding out now is there are actually a lot of people who wind up getting type 1 diabetes later in life as adults. I think a lot of times they're overlooked because we all know people Type 1 diabetes is a pediatric disease, and if we don't think about that, that can be missed. But as we're starting to look a little more carefully, we're finding them, uh, actually people who are diagnosed well into adulthood. And uh, Dr. Griffin, what challenges do families with type 1 diabetes face? You know, I have to admit, I'm, I'm fortunate enough not to be living with myself. I definitely work very closely with a lot of the families who are living with it. One of the biggest challenges is... When we're treating with insulin, we try to do the best we can to mimic what the body should be making on its own, but it can't anymore. And this means that you need constant vigilance. Every time somebody's going to eat, multiple times per day, we need to know what the blood sugar is, what the carbohydrate intake is going to be, and then figure out how do we try to balance that with the right amount of insulin. And unfortunately, number one, we're never going to be as good as somebody's own pancreas should have been. And number two, it means you can never take a break. And if you think about somebody who may be taking blood pressure medicine, if you decide to skip that for a week or something gets away, you can't take it for a week, that's probably not a good idea. But it's also probably not going to be really that severe that day. Whereas being off a little bit on the insulin actually is a big problem. And Dr. Wildy, many families are impacted by type 1 diabetes. Uh, you mentioned that yours is included in that, uh, in that list. Uh, can you just talk about a little bit of uh, your journey? Sure. Um, and I like uh, Dr. Griffin and uh, what he was talking about in terms of the impact on the day-to-day life. But uh, So I was diagnosed uh, 38 years ago and uh, growing up in a small town in northeast South Dakota, um, which by South Dakota standards, I guess, is relatively sizable, but um, certainly the access to care, and uh, we had connections in Minneapolis, so I received a lot of my initial care in Minneapolis and then transitioned uh, as, as Watertown had some more physicians come in, uh, transitioned my care there. My father was also type 1, and uh, so certainly learned the history with his journey as well, and uh, just uh, have seen a lot of 
technological advances through the years. And then, uh, unfortunately, my, I have a daughter who was diagnosed with type 1 at, at about the same age as I was and uh, had wonderful care in the Children's Castle and with the pediatrics endocrinology team and just seeing uh, her journey and, you know, my journey and how we kind of are, are different but the same and the same pathology has is, is been uh, kind of interesting to follow and I wish I didn't have to go through it. You know, in Sanford's footprint, uh, we do have a lot of rural towns, rural cities. How does type 1 diabetes look in those smaller towns, which may be different than other parts of the country? So it, it, having lived in a small town and then, you know, practicing as an internist and, and working with folks in, uh, from smaller towns, it's, it's really that, like Dr. Griffin pointed out, it's, you, you don't get time off from diabetes. You know, you're, there's at least at minimum every six month appointments, if not three month appointments. Uh, there's, uh, you have to be vigilant, kind of have to be a planner with the prescriptions that you take like test strips and insulin and devices now with insulin pumps and sensors and things like that. And it's really working with the logistics of a small town pharmacy to get those things. It's the travel to and from healthcare uh, providers. It's, you know, what if there's a blizzard and they can't get insulin into the pharmacy? Um, so you have to, th you know, things like that, you have to think about that. I, I would imagine in your more urban areas um, where, th where things are more readily available, you, you really have to kind of be a planner in, in regard to uh, things that could happen. I would add that as we're moving on in time, one of the big advances many of the big advances are really with the technology. We now have the ability to be able to collect information from a continuous glucose monitor, from an insulin pump, and we actually showed during the early days of the COVID pandemic here, we could do some of this actually remotely by video. One of the challenges is, you know, even as you get away from the, you know, larger small towns and you get out into the really rural areas, there's not enough internet service to cover that. So that actually is a significant barrier. Uh, we have other families that don't have a computer. You know, they wind up getting a pump and a sensor and they're able to use the devices that come with it, but they don't have a computer that actually download that. That presents a lot of challenges. Well, it's full of challenges. And as we've been talking about, you know, it's ever present. And, you know, my goal is for people to you know, my patients have as normal a life as possible, given that, yeah, they have to take care of all these things. So I don't want it to be the only thing they think about it, but yeah, they, they don't get a break. And that's part of what really drives me to try to find something different. So insulin is life-saving. We can manage things sometimes better than others, but it doesn't take care of the underlying disease process, which is at its heart is an autoimmune attack on the cells that make insulin. And the insulin just replaces what we're not able to make. So that's been the focus of my research career for the last you know, decade and a half is how do we find a way to rebalance the immune system or someday eventually, how do we find a way to prevent somebody from getting type 1 in the first place? And on the terms of finding something different, let's move to the pledge study itself now. Uh, what exactly is that? So the pledge study is Sanford's effort to increase screening for people who may be on the road to type 1 diabetes. And this is something that Diabetes Trial Net, which is an international consortium, a lot of NIH funding has gone into that. They've been looking at family members of people who already have the disease because they're at higher risk. But the mathematics of this work out so that more than 90% of the people who are going to get type 1 diabetes don't already have it in the family. And so we're not even looking at all those people. 
Diabetes Trial Net has also been able to take some of those people that are on that road to diabetes, and we now have the first study that has shown, you know, at least in a smallish group, they can slow that down. And they slow down one treatment up front, slow down by an average of two years, how long it took somebody to actually get full-on diabetes. So that's the first time we're showing we can get some traction here if we can get in earlier. As I said, the problem with that is you're ignoring 90 plus percent of the people who might need that. So how do we find them? And the short answer is we start screening for antibodies. We look at a little bit of blood, can be done off of a finger stick. And right now we're looking kind of at ages about two and about five. So when kids are coming in for well care anyway, and see who may have antibodies against pancreatic proteins that says, hey, they're at risk for progressing to diabetes. One of the things that's really innovative about this is how we're approaching it. We're trying to bake this into routine clinical care for the children. And there have been a couple of other places where they've tried doing some general population screening. But it, clinical research, usually you wind up, you have a clinical research coordinator who winds up sitting in the waiting room, and as people are in the emergency department or coming into a clinic, they get approached and do you want to participate? And it's fairly labor-intensive. And what really helped us to get this going was being able to present the, some of the unique resources and commitment of Sanford to the Helmsley Charitable Trust, because they've been funding some of these other small things, and they've been frustrated that, boy, you just can't enroll that many people, you can't test that many people. And by baking it into our routine care and making it as easy as possible for people to sign up, making it as easy as possible for the providers, for the staff on down the line through the lab, our goal is to screen as many people as we can. That's what leveraging Sanford's infrastructure has led us to, and that's what's led to, just for the first two years, well over a million dollars in support from the Helmsley Charitable Trust. And Dr. Wilde, um, what type of information is being collected? I understand uh, the study also collects information for type 1 diabetes as well as celiac disease. What's that connection? So both of those uh, diseases have autoimmunity, which means you're essentially your immune system attacks something it shouldn't. And uh, in the setting of type 1 diabetes, as, as Dr. Griffin alluded to, it's, it's pancreatic proteins. Uh, it's, it's the cells that produce insulin. And in celiac disease, it's uh, the cells that help break down uh, certain, certain things that we eat. And uh, so a lot of times uh, autoimmunity does not occur in an isolated organ. It can occur in other organs. And so uh, with type 1 diabetes can go celiac disease, which is essentially a gluten intolerance. Uh, and so a lot, there are cases, uh, it, it's more common to have celiac disease in the setting of type 1 diabetes. What is so innovative about this study? I think Dr. Griffin alluded to that. There's been a lot of progress made because as you look at it, it, prevention of type 1 diabetes, it, it's, another, it's another step. It's another arrow in the quiver of, uh, you know, finally defeating this disease. But at the same time, it's, it, research is challenging. It's people have to take it upon themselves to participate, to talk to a coordinator, to check in every so often, things like that. And there's been good progress made. You know, it, I just look at the diabetes walks and things like that where the, the screening has become much easier and there's good learning from that. And this process, again, trying to make it more patient-centered so that uh, the information can be gathered. It's part of the wellness visit that 
nearly every child goes through, should go through, and uh, hopefully make it as easy, as patient-centered as possible so that research isn't burdensome. People should be excited about research that they can help progress us, especially within Sanford. We have so many employees, and I know there's, uh, you know, type 1 diabetics out there, there's people with all, other autoimmune conditions, and uh, certainly would ask them to consider participation as appropriate because, you know, it's, it's, it's Sanford working for Sanford to try to do a great thing. Dr. Griffin, can you explain how this study is potentially able to impact so many children? So for me, that's one of the really humbling aspects of this project is it's not just so that we can screen 3,000 kids in the first year or another 30,000 the two years after that is our plan. There's a lot on the back end of this that's not readily visible for most of the people participating. That's the, frankly, economic analysis. How do we look at what are the costs of doing this, which we can measure because we're doing it in the setting of our health system, but also what are the cost savings? What does this prevent in hospitalizations for ketoacidosis at diagnosis, in control of blood sugar that you have if you're presenting DKA? We have actually engaged with our health plan and the hospital system so that we can measure a lot of these things and really try to make a real assessment as to how can we make this actually cost-effective. And we have some people in our population health area of the research group that are they have very sophisticated models for this that we can actually adjust and say, okay, if we move this slider, how far does it have to go before this now pays for itself? And so beyond my, you know, near to medium term goal of, I want to offer this to every kid in our system, in, our, in the Sanford footprint. More importantly, this has the potential of, you know, if we can show it's cost effective, this becomes standard of care and part of the routine screening that kids go through. And especially because we're just now getting to the point where we're starting to get some traction for what can we do to actually intervene, not just to have somebody know that they're on the path. And, you know, at, at a minimum, the monitoring that we'll be doing for anybody that's on that path, we can, we should at least be able to prevent people coming in quite so sick and start appropriate treatment much earlier than the usual presentation, which is nobody knows they have diabetes until they come in and wind up in an intensive care unit. Dr. Willie, why is Sanford making an investment in type 1 diabetes and pledge, and why are you so passionate about getting the word out? So we've uh, committed to caring type 1 diabetes, and uh, that's, it's a, it's a great task. It's a great cause. It, uh, it, it obviously takes time. It takes great minds. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, this is part of the progress toward that cure. And I think one of the more attractive things that we've learned through research in what's called immunology and things like that is really uh, how autoimmunity leads to type 1 diabetes and what can be done to prevent that. And it initially starts with a delay in a diagnosis or like Dr. Griffin was alluding to. So you know you kind of have a heads up because otherwise you diagnose type 1 diabetes and you're, you're kind of fine and then you're really not. And your, your life really changes in not a lot of time. And all of a sudden it's, and I, I kind of likened, you know, when my daughter was diagnosed too, 
uh, literally bringing home a child from the, from the hospital after birth is you went in one way and you came out another way. And that, and that's the way it was with type one diabetes. All of a sudden, hey, what's her blood sugar? Where, uh, what are we gonna do about insulin? When's the last time she tested? She's gonna go out and play, she's gotta test her, you know, you, you, things like that. And so when you look at a study like this and delaying the time to diagnosis or, or eventually leading to prevention of diagnosis, that's a tremendous opportunity. And I think uh, Dr. Griffin, Griffin's research, and like I alluded to earlier, with the ease of this process makes it a very attractive study that I think we have a lot of people that could willingly participate in this and uh, frankly give us a lot of answers and make progress toward that ultimate goal. And Dr. Griffin, what do you envision the future of type 1 diabetes looking like? I wish my crystal ball worked that well. <laughs> I would start with you know how much has changed just in the time that I've been in practice with the types of insulin we have, the technology we have. The technology is advancing by leaps and bounds to where it's beginning to not be automated, but start to have some automation light. So if you think about, you know, you can't really fall asleep while you're driving your Tesla on autopilot, but, you know, you can almost do something I like that. I saw a video of that, by the way, and that is absolutely terrifying. Not recommended, no. <laughs> That's a way that we're going to make progress faster and faster and particularly for all the people who already have type 1 diabetes, that's going to have the biggest impact for them. In the longer term, yes, how do we find ways to rebalance the immune system for people that maybe are diagnosed fairly recently or on their way there? And it's one of those things where the earlier you go and the younger you go, the more gentle you have to be in terms of safety and ethical balances. The, the, the way we look at how type 1 starts, it probably starts with just reacting to one particular protein. And we have, you know, some studies that are in the pipeline where for that one particular protein that, or two particular proteins that may are most common to trigger, how do we take out all the cells that make antibodies against just those two proteins and leave all the other ones alone? And there's actually a way where we think we can do that and we'll be, we'll be trying that. That's the sort of thing that you can, you know, if it's as safe as we all hope and expect that kind of approach to be, that antigen-specific therapy, that's the sort of thing you could see giving to a, just a little tiny infant who's just starting to react and nip it in the bud, as opposed to waiting until they're much further on, the immune system is really revved up, you're reacting to many, many different proteins. That's a much harder situation to try to fix at that point. Now, both of you can answer this last question. How can Stanford employees and community members participate in Pledge? I'm glad you asked. Starting with the community members, you know, talk to your Stanford primary care provider. We're, our goal is to try to get this spread as w widely and as far across our footprint as we can. There is also a website that's under Stanford Research, but, you know, if you use Google, you should be able to find that. Uh, and then for the providers, as we're rolling out to each clinic, we're trying to provide enough information uh, and trying, again, to make this as easy as possible. For families, what we're doing right now is children who are eligible, who are coming into a clinic that has this up and going, if we know they have an appointment coming, we send them a message through my chart. And that's another thing that's really innovative about this is, as I said, we don't have a coordinator sitting in the office recruiting. We can send a message through my chart, and they can actually go through the consent process through my chart, and then when they come in, they're already essentially enrolled, the order's already in place, and at the end of their visit, they stop by the lab, which they may well need to stop there anyway, and we can just grab a little bit of extra blood while they're actually being drawn, or they just, you know, get their blood drawn and off they go. 
Dr. Wilding, anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I would just add that, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of camaraderie at Sanford, a lot of folks working together and uh, good friends out there. And there's a lot of uh, people that are, are parents of, of younger children. I think Dr. Griffin lays out a great process that with just a little bit of effort, uh, you can participate in a very important project. But tell, tell your friends, talk about it at work. Talk about the fact that it's easy to do. It's, it's a great thing to do. It, it's participating in very exciting uh, research. And that's some of the best marketing we can do is just within our own uh, employees and then talking amongst their friends and things like that. You know, there's, we're all connected with uh, various media outlets and, and social media especially. And, and just really get that message out that it's okay to do this. I mean, there's... It, it doesn't take necessarily an extra blood draw like Dr. Griffin alluded to. There's probably going to be a blood draw at the appointment anyway. And a little extra sample is taken. And uh, it's it's for, it, it could be frankly for the betterment of that, that child, or it, it's going to be for the betterment of children going forward. Dr. Wilde and Dr. Griffin, thank you both so much for your time today and sharing this innovative and incredible study that we're doing. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. Before we wrap up, a reminder that Sanford Health Innovations podcast is now available on your favorite podcast apps like Apple and Spotify, as well as our website, Sanford Health News. If you enjoyed this conversation, follow us, give us a thumbs up, and share your comments. We love hearing from you and hope you find these conversations insightful. Thanks for listening. I'm Simon Floss with Sanford Health News.